This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. We don't like them, and yet uh, decrepitude is uh, an important aspect of being. Um, I didn't realize quite I was going to go to this place, but um, decrepitude can also be looked at in a lot of different ways that results. Maybe it's not just the decrepitude, but uh, aspects of um, how we feel about ourselves. We can stigmatize ourselves, and often it's... uh, the causes of stigma are, are blemishes of one kind or another, um, uh, tribal distinctions, and, and then there are other aspects too, like mental illness, uh, that result in stigmatization of us, of people, and also stigmatize people that are related to the people that may be afflicted. And and it causes uh, harm, great harm to people when people are stigmatized. Um, uh, when we stigmatize, we are selecting, we are choosing good and bad, or what we think are good and bad. And, and in Buddhism, um, uh, it's not that we don't have uh, distinctions. Uh, in the, in the Buddhist psychology of the Abhidharma, it talks about not what is good and what is bad, but it talks about what is beneficial and what is unbeneficial. And that, that puts it in a whole different context that's, I think, helpful to um, see that uh, what is beneficial, not just right here for this one who's I want to be enlightened. I want, I want it all for me. But, so that's beneficial for me, but if I'm stepping over other people or um, being selective about what I'm sharing with other people, then am I beneficial? If it's only beneficial to me, is it, benef- it should be beneficial to, to all, all beings, uh, the best we can. And uh, the Jains in India sweep their way to make sure they don't step on bugs. Uh, They think that's beneficial. The rest of us um, bludgeon through the pathways and step on all sorts of things ignorantly, maybe carefully. Uh, You know, the more you are attuned to the what's around, when we're tuned to what's around us, we're, we notice more. So it's like, oh, what am I stepping on here? And uh, I, out here in the woods, there's all kinds of wonderful things to step on, including a lot of soft ground. You know, and uh, recently having visited San Francisco and walking the streets again, the pavement is hard. And coming back in it, and it hurts. It hurts in so many different places, you know? And it's like, 
uh, oh, wow, the city. But then you come back out into the woods and, and all these critters are, are working the ground and working the air and working the trees. Um, it's just wonderful to have these pocket gophers that excavate under the ground and make all these cool piles of dirt, but then the ground's really soft to step on, especially if you go off trail. And uh, I encourage you to do that. Uh, it's uh, watch your step, but it's it feels so different. And so today uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about. Um, Kind of following up what we heard Ben Connolly talk about of uh, intimacy and mindfulness. Uh, how do we be intimate with our lives? And one way to become more intimate is knowing what we're up to and uh, being mindful and aware are two aspects that can help with that. Uh, there are many other things that can as well. And this, this last week I had a conversation with a Theravadan, uh, one who had been a, a priest. And we talked about the precepts, no killing, no lying, no stealing, no sexual misconduct. And he said, those are precepts for our meditation. Now, I had never thought about that. I always thought about it was these precepts are for our actions, are our, our out in the world like the Ten Commandments are. But it made per, per, it makes perfect sense because that's where it all all these actions begin is in our mind. Um, to go to a place of stigma again, I. I went to visit some prisoners at Pleasant Valley State Prison this last week, and people in prison are stigmatized um, in so many different ways. But I, I brought this up to a couple of men that I, I met with in B Yard and uh, about the precepts as being a guide for one's meditation. And they said, oh yes, of course, of course it's that way. You know, it's, it's like we're in here and all this stuff comes down on us and it's like, what are we going to do? And of course, one of the things you want to do is kill somebody or get mad at them or do something mean or choice words. And so when they go into their meditation, they're actually paying attention to what's on their mind and they see they begin to control their mind or have an ability to guide their mind in ways that were without any guidance before. And so it was, uh, that's one of the reasons I like going to the prison because it's like going to a monastery. There are serious practitioners there and they enlighten me. And of course, uh, a lot of people who go to the prison to do, be, do volunteer work, you know, think, well, they're making an offering and I'm going there to help and I'm a good person for doing that. 
I actually go there because I learn stuff from these guys. They have a secret practice in a way that they can't talk about with each other hardly at all. And yet in the right circumstance, just like we find, um, when there's a lot of times we can hang out with family, relatives, friends, and the territory that we can talk about is all of a certain kind. And what, what is really in our heart isn't able to be shared. Um, but in a right circumstance, right conditions, right safety of a, of a space, then, then it's interesting what comes out of us. And it's uh, a gift when we can share that stuff. And a gift to be able to hear it. Um, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, motivational dispositions. Uh, it's, it's how Vasubandhu defined the fourth aggregate, uh, form, feelings, and say, uh, perceptions, we say impulses, but it can also be called uh, formations or motivational dispositions, and then consciousness, and it's consciousnesses. There are all these different consciousnesses we have. We have eye consciousness, ear consciousness, and they're separate, but we combine them together. We have body consciousness, we have mind consciousness, and they come together in different collections. And I, I know in Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism, um, our uh, focus generally in our meditation is uh, objectless. Uh, maybe it's just watching our breath, which I guess is an object, but, but basically it's being aware, just being open and aware. Um, in, in Theravadan Buddhism, um, they're looking at things. They're looking at posture, body, uh, uh, breath, um, uh, what thoughts are coming in. Of course, we're doing that as well. And they have all these ways of being mindful of these different qualities we, we are experiencing. Uh, Zen Buddhism goes more for uh, just this present moment. Uh, and yet we bring all of this, uh, our history with us. Um, we bring our preference with us. And, uh, and it isn't always necessarily beneficial. Um, I'm going to digress slightly here and read something from uh, Carl Jung when he talks about... Uh, how the Protestants, uh, basically they, try, they were about destroying the icons of the Catholic Church and saying, we're done with this, you know, what's going on? 
and he, and he, he says, uh, the iconoclasm of the Reformation quite literally made a breach in the protective wall of sacred images. And since then, one image after another has crumbled away. Of course, he's talking in the early part of the 20th century. And I haven't studied how all these icons have disappeared or anything like that, but maybe some of you have a sense of that. Could it be that men and women have never really known what they meant? And that only in recent times did it occur to the Protestant part of mankind that actually we haven't the remotest conception of what is meant by the virgin birth, the divinity of Christ, Christ, the complexities of the Trinity. It almost seems as if these images had, had just lived and as if their living existence had simply been accepted without question and without reflection much as everyone decorates Christmas trees or hides Easter eggs without ever knowing what these customs mean. The fact is that our, our typical images are so packed with meaning in themselves that people never think of asking what they really do mean. And when, he start, when we start thinking about them, often so with the help of what we call reason, quote-unquote reason, which in point of fact is nothing more than the sum total of all our prejudices and myopic views. So I just thought that was an interesting definition of reason, our preferences and our myopic views. And so we think we're being logical and reasonable, but maybe we need to check that and and see if there aren't preferences involved and very narrow um, suffocating views that have uh, actually remove uh, the vitality out of, out of what we're engaged with. Um, During our zazen, it was wonderful to hear a little bit of the vitality running by in the rain. <laughs> it, um, I haven't run in the rain in decades, and um, I ought to be a kid again. Um, in a way, sorry I'm not a kid again, but I'm glad to not be a kid again, yet again, um, maybe this afternoon. <laughs> all in our heart anyway um, <clears throat> so uh, back to the motivational dispositions um, they are a manifestation of our chitta our heart mind and chitta uh, a Sanskrit term is um, it said that when our, our, we're not in control of our chitta, uh, it is said to go off with a will of its own, if not properly controlled. And chitta 
is the emotive side of our the heart mind of our um, of our mind. So uh, it's also described as uh, uh, we, we also talk about it in terms of uh, when we're meditating of watching uh, our, the chitta, the, the consciousness moments uh, that come up um, that we reflect on. Uh, when we're meditating, we basically are in a place where we take a step back and can watch these uh, trains of chitta come through and um, get a sense of how our minds are, how they are functioning or not. Uh, in much control. I'm not in the kind of control that we would like. It's like, where did those thoughts come from? Why am I still so angry? Why? Why, why, why? <laughs> now, the, the premium chitta, uh, heart-mind uh, motivation, is bodhicitta. Bodhicitta Bodhicitta is, is talked of as the awakened mind, uh, the mind of enlightenment. It's a uh, bodhicitta is used in, in Mahayana Buddhism, which Zen Buddhism is a part of. But it's also defined as the spontaneous intention to do what is beneficial to the welfare of all beings. And bodhicitta, this, this aspiration to do what is beneficial for all beings, that's what makes, that's a vow, that's, a, that's an intention that bodhisattvas have. And I think uh, all of us from time to time, if not all the time, have, have a sense of doing what is beneficial for all. Now, uh, Our life is made up of moment, moment events that uh, involves different parts of our um, mind and body. Um, there are moment events that give rise to suffering. And those moment events that give rise to suffering are considered unbeneficial. Moment events that give rise to the cessation of suffering are, are beneficial. And then the moment events that arise that give rise to neither suffering nor the cessation of suffering are considered indeterminate. Now, um, this chitta, um, these, that's involved in the motivational dispositions um, this, this um, mind, body, mind, heart aspect, um, there are there are um, eleven 
in the in Vasubandhu talks about eleven um, of the motivational dispositions are beneficial, and these include faith, inner shame, dread of blame, and the root of the beneficial lack of greed, lack of hostility, lack of confusion. Um, and five more beneficial ones are vigor, uh, chitta with tranquility, chitta with carefulness, with equanimity, and an attitude of non-harming. Now, um, the um, root of the beneficial with lack of greed, greed and hostility, um, greed especially is connected with our, what's called the manas, or it's a more to higher ego-related aspects of our mind. Um, so when we're getting into the realms of anger and hatred, hostility, greed, um, our ego is involved. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it hurts when our ego gets hurt. Uh, and it's important to remember also that uh, there are some cultures that one of their first lines of spiritual understanding is you take nothing personal. So that's kind of hard to do, but uh, it's uh, helpful. I think it's helpful for us. Maybe it's helpful in like um, being able to see when you're when you don't take something personally, that you can actually see the motivation that's coming at you in a clear way of. Is it an attack on, on this, or is it, uh, is it a confusion or hostility that is driven by uh, a lot of earlier trouble in the person that's coming at you, of uh, their misunderstandings, their... Uh, their fears, their discontent with um, themselves and their needing to lash out at others. And in talking with these prisoners, you know, when some, some of them have a sense of like, they go out into the yard, they can feel what's going on. And, uh, and a couple of them have talked to me about circumstances where people come at them and they are able to skillfully, more skillfully address what's coming at them because they are not reacting immediately. They are, are seeing what's coming at them and can actually get a sense of love for those that they are, that are coming at them. And it's, uh, it's remarkable that these guys, some of them can have that. Uh, because of their crimes that they commit, they are not gonna be out soon. 
or ever. And yet these might be acts that they committed when they were teenagers or in their early 20s. And there's, uh, they've been in the, because they killed someone when they're 21, they're still, they're in their 50s and they're still in prison and they haven't, they've led a peaceful life all the way through, but because of our, our system, they're, they're stuck there. So, or they're, that's their home. And um, then they have to deal with um, these others that come laden with their preferences and their prejudices, and they get to wear a uniform. Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with that when you're stigmatized as a prisoner and there's, there's no recourse or very little recourse? So uh, some of the other um, there are there are six of the motivational dispositions we have that are uh, are, are afflictions: um, attachment, aversion, pride, ignorance, views, and doubt. Now, connected with uh, aversion and pride, maybe, are things that result in secondary afflictions like anger, malice and hatred, maliciousness, envy, selfishness, deceitfulness, guile, desire to harm, lack of shame, lack of dread of blame, mental fogginess, lack of faith, Sloth, carelessness, loss of mindfulness, distractedness, and lack of recognition. And then there are four more that actually are um, considered both beneficial and unbeneficial motivational disposi dispositions. One is called regret, torpor, initial mental application, and subsequent discursive thought. Um, typically, uh, in one of the precepts, it's don't think about, don't don't dwell on past mistakes, which sounds like it's saying, do not feel regret. But dwelling on past mistakes again and again and again is, is um, keeps one trapped in that mental cycle. And yet um, you can also look at regret in terms of, here's something I can work with that I'm not going to do that again. And then you don't, you're not thinking about it more, but you're able to meet the regret and it's a useful, beneficial thing. It said torpor is another one that is a beneficial and unbeneficial. And you think torpor, which is like being just totally out of gas and is not beneficial. but in my decrepitude to be with it 
and not be fighting it in a, in a way, relaxing into it and not and taking another nap because this body ain't going. It's okay. It is beneficial to this being. I wake up from the nap rejuvenated. So I can see where torpor can have both connotations, both, both uses. Um, the third one was initial mental application. And when we, when we begin something, we have our initial mental application to, um, I'm going to go sit, or I'm, I'm going to begin this thing. Um, it can also then carry forward into more unbeneficial aspects. But that's for us to evaluate and look at. In the meditation we do as we're driving home, because that can be a meditation, or meditation on the cushion, or uh, other ways that we reflect. And then the, the last one, the affliction, uh, uh, that can be an affliction or beneficial is the subsequent discursive thought. And when we initially meet something, we begin to think about it. Um, Katagiri Roshi, who I studied with in, in Minnesota, he, he said, uh, first thought is okay. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the second, third, and fourth, boy, the thought train is going. It's like you're already not present anymore. So to stop at the first thought and come back to this moment, to uh, stop at form, you know, we, we experience form, and then often it's, is it, it's an overcast day, it's not a good day. Or it's rainy today, it's not a good day. But then, if that's the discursive thought has already gone to two thoughts and you're already in the mire. So to, to watch that your thoughts can, you can stop it at the first thought and come back to the present moment. One of the men I visited this week, he, um, I'm not sure what crime he committed when he was in his late teens, but he came from a, he knew his mom, but he was in a foster home and he, he got into drugs and heroin and he was even using heroin in prison. And uh, he said this, uh, he knew of these two guys, one guy, two, guy uh, two brothers that were Buddhists in there. And, and one of them came up to him one point and said, uh, you know, come talk to me when you're done with your rice. And they don't, weren't, weren't eating rice. And <laughs> he just, and a, a month later, you know, it's like, you know, he's scratching his head and wondering, what's this guy saying? 
<laughs> so he, he said he came up to the, the guy again and he, he said, what do you mean about come see me when you're done with the rice? And the other prisoner said, uh, I was wondering if that offended you or if, if you maybe understood the deeper meaning. And he said, well, I, yeah, it bothered me. You know, you you confused me and it, it angered me. And out of that exchange with him, this guy taught him the sutra and knowing the better way to live alone. It's one that we sometimes chant here. Um, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls one who knows the way to live in mindfulness and awareness, the one who knows the better way to live alone. And he said that that sutra got him off heroin. And he's a really strong practitioner in the prison. So I get to go see these guys. And, and I, I've got quite some questions. You know, I'm supposed to be the one who knows, you know. I'm, wearing this brown, I got the mic on my lapel. You know, I'm sitting up in the front. And to go and meet these men, and it's, it's uh, I learned so much. I uh, find out really how ignorant I am on all sorts of Buddhist stuff, as well as interpersonal stuff. And these guys are living in that monastery uh, day after day after day. Um, people that come out of prison are stigmatized. Mentally ill people are stigmatized. And we're, they're stigmatized by people that themselves are ignorant and afraid. And, and even this whole process for the mentally ill of making it more, having people more knowledgeable about mental illness and you know, people know about mental illness in their own families and with friends and elsewhere. Um, the, the actual tolerance for the mentally ill is as low today as it was in the 50s. So, so it's, it's uh, I don't know how that is going to change, but um, it's based on fear. You know, that uh, somebody who's slightly, if, if somebody's considered slightly uh, not stable, it's, it's, that becomes a label that then gets stuck on them. And their ability to be promoted, their ability to get a fair, fair hearing, even in just listening to someone who you think is, ah, oh, this person's unstable, you know, what am I, what am I really listening to here? You already have your screens up. We do. We 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 do. We can do that. Um,
pride is another one that is uh, one of the motivational dispositions we have. And I'd like to share what Vasubandhu talks about pride. What is pride? There are seven kinds of pride. Basic pride, greater pride, the pride that is more than pride, the pride of thinking I am, conceit, the pride of thinking deficiency, and false pride. Basic pride is an inflation of citta, which considers through a smallness either I am greater or I am equal. What is greater pride? Greater pride is any inflation of citta which considers through an equality that I am greater or I am endowed with greatness. And what is pride that is more than pride? It is any inflation of citta which considers through a greatness that I am great and what is the pride of thinking I am? And what is the pride of thinking I am, quote-unquote, I am? It is any inflation of citta which is connected with the view of either I am or mine in regard to appropriating aggregates or gathering uh, aspects for self. And what is conceit? It is any inflation of citta which considers in regard to an excellence which was previously obtained in another moment, but is no longer. I have attained it. And what is pride of thinking deficiency? It is any inflation of citta which considers I am only a little bit inferior to those of greatly excellent qualities. And what is false pride? <laughs> that tickled. <laughs> and pride of thinking deficiency? No, let's see, uh, false pride. It is any inflation of a cheetah which considers I am endowed with good qualities. And when good qualities have not, when good qualities have not been acquired, so, so, so to, you know, in, in, in all these things that we think about and, and experience, you know, it's, it's, it is useful to make these distinctions, these discernments from time to time. Um, I think in, in this practice we have, uh, uh, as, a, uh, as a father, one of the things that, um, my, my wife and I have, have four sons and they did music, uh, Suzuki violin, and were accomplished. And, and then other parents would say, oh, Doug, you should be so proud. And of course, the only 
thinking of pride, I thought about is pride is one of the seven deadly sins. And I said, well, um, I'm not proud, I'm honored. Or, you know, but maybe that's another form of pride. I didn't know how to take it because I didn't want to be prideful. I wanted to be appreciative. And your, your child did so well, you know, I could do that. And, and actually, I felt that genuinely. Uh, we'd go to the, these, uh, our kids would go to the recitals that we'd have every month or two months. And it was, uh, one of the wonderful things about it is to see each child get up and perform. Each one is performing their Buddha nature, their nature of what they have to offer. And usually, we, people go with like, oh, they didn't play that very well, or they got a long ways to go. And basically, you know, judging where they are in the whole thing, and yet they are at the pinnacle of their performance right in that moment. They are at their peak. Whether they're, they're a, a new one to Suzuki violin, and all they do is put the violin under their arm and bow. And their full attention on is just doing a bow, and everybody claps, and it's just, this little kid just did a bow. He's, he's beginning this whole thing. And so can we not judge what is coming at us and, and instead be content in ourselves to be, we are whole. Each of us is whole in this moment. We are each whole and complete. Nothing is missing, nothing to be gained. And it's when our ego then comes up and says, uh, I, I got to move up the ladder of, at my work, or I got to get a bigger house, or, you know, then, then we're always, we're, we're off. We're not whole. We have just, um, we are missing the mark of meeting ourselves as we wholly are. And so that's why it's important to come and waste time here on the cushion. <laughs> I heard one Franciscan um, monk give a sermon once, and he said, it's important to waste time with God. I thought, what? <laughs> you know, what a... I never heard any Catholic or Christian sermon, a preacher or anybody say it's important to waste time with God. You know, it's... And I thought, wow, that, that's another good way to look at it. Um, I mean, do we call, is, is prayer different than meditation? Is prayer different than contemplation or all of these somewhat related uh, aspects? And uh, I know some people who del deal in, in, uh, Religious thought have clear distinctions for these things, right, Ross? <laughs> but um, <clears throat> maybe it's better to break down the walls between them. I want to read something that. Uh, I've been reading this book called Another Kind of Madness um, by a professor from Cal, Berkeley, whose um, father was a 
philosophy professor at uh, Ohio State. And he studied at Princeton at the time when Bertrand Russell was there. So he had a chance to study with Bertrand Russell and had met Albert Einstein. And Stephen Henshaw, now a professor, um, he's about my age at, uh, at, at Berkeley. Um, he, um, he put in his book here a quote from Bertrand Russell. He says, uh, Russell, Bertrand Russell was describing love and compassion. If you feel this, love and compassion, you have a motive for existence, a guide in action, a reason for courage, and an imperative necessary for intellectual honesty. I'm going to stop there and Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.